Well, let me begin by asking a question that I'm going to acknowledge from the onset will seem to be a very strange and unusual question. And that is, is a blessing always a blessing? And that's an unusual question, I know. But, but here, follow me. When we think of the good things in life, the things that we desire, good things, you know, things like health and a good job, uh, when we think about succeeding in the things that are important to us, the things that we work hard at, when we think of good things like healthy relationships and material blessings and all the other blessings in life, the things that we see as blessing, the question is, is it always a blessing if we get these things that we desire? Let me maybe ask a different way. As parents, we long to give these things to our children. You know, so I want to give them, not only meet their needs, I want to be able to give them benefits of life. I want to be able to, I would love to give them success in their efforts and popularity. And if I had the resources to give them all those things, would it be a loving thing for me as a parent to give them everything that they desired, all the blessings that they wanted? Or is it possible that sometimes I could give them too many good things and the result would not be to help them but harm them? James begins his book by teaching us to count it all joy when you meet various kinds of trials. Now, we saw in our study over these last couple of weeks that James isn't calling us to feel happy about trials. He's not telling us about our feeling, but when we looked at this more deeply, we, see it, we saw that he's speaking about how we think. He uses intellectual words, mental words. Look, he says, count it all joy. He's saying when you do this calculation about the pros and the cons, Realize that there's reason in your calculation to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because you know. You know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. That's God's way of growing you. We can count it joy because we know that nothing will happen to us except that which God allows. And God will allow these trials only when he knows that in doing so, he can use them to grow us in our faith and grow us in our maturity. Beyond that, he says that we're called, called to count it joy, not happiness. Happiness is a feeling that is dependent on circumstances. Joy is something that transcends happiness. So I can be joyful even when I'm not happy. Now the question is this, if we should count it joy when we face trials of different kinds because we know that God allows these trials for our good, we know that God is, is allowing this because there's a blessing in the midst of the trial that will transcend the pain and difficulty. If we're called to count it joy in trials, then how are we to view it in times of prosperity? See, again, we've seen over these past couple weeks that James calls us to see that in times of trial, God will use these trials to, to build the most important principles in our life, that, you know, to give us a mature faith, that, that the most precious gifts of all. Now let me point something out and then use that even to ask a question. Many of us, and I've talked to many of you, and, and we would, many of us would readily agree that we would say that we've learned some of the most precious, the most important, the most valuable life lessons in the most difficult periods of our life. We've learned things and grown in ways that in the long run are keys to our, our success, are keys to our happiness because of how we've grown. So much so that we're healthier and happier as people in a way that, that makes it worth the pain that we went through in the trial. Now the question is this, how many of us could say that 
as we look back in our life, we've learned really valuable and important lessons of life in times of prosperity. Why is it that we've learned those things in the hard times and it's hard to find the lessons we learned in the good times? In fact, we can turn that around and almost point out a negative to it. It's not only a question of whether we can say whether we have or have not learned life lessons in time of prosperity. How many of us were honest would say, yeah, in times of prosperity, I forgot the lessons that I learned in the most difficult times. Those precious lessons, those life lessons that are the key to the health and happiness when times of prosperity, I kind of wander away from those things. And if that's the case, would it be appropriate to say that if trials are the source of great joy and ultimate blessing, is it appropriate to think that maybe in times of prosperity, there actually may be a hidden trial or temptation? There might be something hidden there that might actually lead us away from those great blessings and really lead us ultimately to brokenness. You see, these are leading us to ask some really kind of probing and uncomfortable questions. Again, in the past few weeks, we've looked at James 1, 2 through 8, and we've seen that, that trials aren't always bad. No, trials are always painful. Trials always include bad things. It's not that the trial in and of itself is good. No, the thing that's happening itself might be bad, and it has bad things, but the fact is God allows the trial because he wants to accomplish through those painful, bad things something good so that we can count it joy because we recognize that God will accomplish something good that transcends the bad. Now again, that leads me to ask the question that I opened with. If trials aren't always bad but actually can be good, well then the question is, are blessings always good? Or as we asked before, is a blessing always a blessing? Or can good blessings actually, again, become the temptation for something bad and ultimately lead us away from the ultimate blessings and lead us to brokenness? See, this is the issue that James is going to deal with in the verses we're looking at today in verses 9 through 12. That's what he's, he's struggling with. Again, verses 2 through 8 teach us how to view trials how to have a God perspective on these trials and these difficult times so that we can see it with wisdom and see what God is trying to teach us. And now he's saying in verses 9 through 12, okay, if you understand how to view trials, well, how, to learn, how, how should we view prosperity? Because we likewise need to have a God perspective. We need to see what God sees in times of prosperity to be able to avoid the dangers and to be able to pursue the growth. Now, I want to tell you, this is an issue over which there is a great deal of confusion especially within the modern church. You see, there are many churches that will teach that, that since you know, Christians are God's children, well, God wants to give good things to his children. He wants to bless his children. Well, that's what parents want to do, right? So, so they therefore say that since God wants to desire or bless his children, it's God's desire that our life would be filled with blessings of health and wealth and happiness. And these churches teach, you know, if your life is, is not currently experiencing material blessings, if you're not currently experiencing all these physical blessings, then the problem is you just don't have enough faith. If you have enough faith, if you would believe all things are possible with God. And so you need enough faith. Or, or maybe there might be a problem. Some would say maybe there's a problem. There's some sin in your life that you're not aware of and God's trying to get you aware of it and trying to teach you. And if you take care of that sin, well, God just wants to, you know, remove any obstacle and just heap blessings upon you. 
Now, some of you know that this is not at all uncommon because I know that some of you have come from churches where you have been taught this idea and you've struggled with that. And, and unfortunately, this is not only wrong, but because it's wrong, it can be devastating, especially for people going through periods of trial. I, I remember, and it's an example, someone who became a really good friend of mine at a previous church, and, and he was coming out of, his family was coming out of a church where he was heavily steeped into this health, wealth, gospel preaching. And, and him and his, his wife, they were going through a major period of crisis in their life. And in that crisis, they had all their friends and, and, and counselors, and they were telling them, well, the problem is you just don't have enough faith. And if you had more faith, then God would bless you. Or other would say, uh, well, the problem is that you must have some unconfessed sin. And if you just deal with this sin, well, God's going to bless you because God wants to bless you. Now, here you have this godly couple. And they went, by the time I got to meet them and they came to our church, they were just broken because they, they were searching their hearts for this unknown sin. They'd repented of everything they could think of and nothing got better. They tried to muster up enough faith if we just believe, and they were trying to do everything they could to believe more, and, and yet it wasn't working. And so here you have this couple that is going through this incredible period of trial, and on top of the pain, they were burdened with guilt of some sin they didn't even know about, or their failure of faith. And I remember as I got to know this couple, and a special man started to share some of these things with me. I, I took them to a number of passages where I showed that, okay, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible actually totally contradicts that idea. And one of the passages we looked at was here in James chapter 1. No, the Bible says, count it joy when you face trials because it's not because of your failure. It's maybe because God's stretching and growing your faith. You know, we looked at the example of Job. Job went through incredible trials, not because he didn't have faith, not because of some sin, God bragged on him and said, here's the guy that is you know, my top draft pick. Here's the guy that has more faith than anyone in the world. But yet God allowed trials in his life because even Job in his maturity had room to grow. And if you study the whole book, you see that God grew him through those trials. Now, as dangerous as this health, wealth, gospel can be to those who are going through periods of trial, it can be equally dangerous to those who are going through periods of prosperity. And the reason is, is that it teaches something wrong about the nature of God and something wrong about the nature of his blessings. See, it presents material wealth and blessings, physical wealth and prosperity as being the ultimate blessings that God could give us. And so those are the greatest gifts. And so what you need to do is you need to believe God in a certain way and basically God becomes a means to the end. The end is material blessings and, and faith in God becomes the means by how we get that. And, but what we saw, especially two weeks ago, especially, you know, we looked at a passage like in 1 Peter, well, no, the greatest gift that God can give us is not material blessings. It's a mature faith. It, it's something that transcends the material blessings. But yet, there's a lot of confusion here. And so we've got to say, how do we understand this? Now, let's go back to where, again, looking at what we've seen. In James 1-2, we saw a couple weeks ago where it says, you know, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops steadfastness. Now, when we look at this, here's the question I want to ask again. If we are to look at times that are trials and we're called to count it joy, well, how are we to view times when everything's going well? If we're called to consider it joy when we go through difficult times, 
And if we understand that that difficult time causes us to develop wisdom and maturity, again, how should we understand the times of prosperity? Does it imply that there is a danger in times of prosperity, that, that the things that we will learn in times of difficulty, it's harder to learn in times of prosperity, or there's maybe even a danger of forgetting those things? And so what, that's, what, again, exactly what we're looking at here. He's saying, okay, it's not like, okay, times of trial grow, and other times sit back and enjoy it. He says, no, recognize that there's a danger here. Let's look at it again, verses 9 through 12. As we dive into it, I want you to point out here that, that James is teaching that there's a relationship between trials and temptation. Now, when we look at verses 9 through 12, what I want you to see is in the context of all of what we looked at in the first half of chapter 1, it's all part of one whole. He's, the whole thing, including these sections that we're looking at, is, is talking about trials. Let me show you this. Look at verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. I want you to point out, okay, key thing, steadfast under trial. Remember that. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now let's go back to verse 2. In the very beginning, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So again, what does he say in the beginning? When you meet trials that produce steadfastness. Verse 12, it talks about steadfastness and trials. Now when you see the repeating of those exact words, what I want you to see is those verses are bookends to an idea. That everything from 2 through 12 is all teaching one concept this broad concept, and, and just in case we missed it, he comes back and restates a lot of the same ideas in verse 12 to say, okay, keep this all together. So when we look at this, we've got to say, okay, then how do we understand then verses 10 and 11 when it talks about people, the rich man, the people in prosperous times? And what we've got to see is that when it says, you know, we should boast in our humiliation, what he's saying is that to some degree, we need to realize that there is a, a trial in the midst of prosperity. That these verses that talk about prosperity are actually talking in the midst of his teaching on trial. Now, let's be honest here. On the one hand, this doesn't really make sense. You know, we might be thinking, if prosperity is a kind of trial, I'm for that trial. God, give me trials. You know, give me the trial of prosperity. I like that trial a whole lot better than the ones that I usually get. So how is it that trials or, pros or prosperity can be a trial? Now, to help you go to it, let me go to verse 13. That's uh, verse 13 of James 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he, he himself tempts no one. Now, this is the passage we're going to start looking at next week. He's talking about temptation. But here's what I want you to realize, something that is not evident in, in the English Bibles that we read, but but is significant in the original in the Greek. The Greek word here translated trials in verse 2 and verse 12 is the exact same word translated temptation here in 13. It's one word. Now, in our English, we look at that and we look at the context of the verses. And so from the context, let's say here in James 2, we know that we should translate a trial in verse 2 and temptation here in verse 13. But there's one word and there's a basic meaning that overarches that kind of fits both trial and temptation. The, the basic meaning of the word is pressure or trial. See, here's what we need to realize. And it, is, is it can be an external trial, an external pressure, 
So in verses 2 through 11, when it talks, or 2 through 12, when it talks about trials, what it's talking about is an external trial, something that happens to us from outside. And when we face these external trials, they create pressure. And this pressure is something that could, you know, that could destroy us, but yet God allows to also build us. But then when we look at the other side, it could also be an internal pressure. An internal pressure which becomes a temptation. We see, feel something from within. This pressure to be able to do something. And this, this pressure here is, 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 again, it's the idea of temptation. So both trials and temptation are pressure that God allows into our life. We're going to see this next week, that God allows us to be tempted. That's something that he could hold us back from, but he allows us to face temptation because it's a pressure. Yes, it could destroy us, just like trials can, but it also teaches us to depend upon God in a way that we grow in our faith. Both in trials and temptation, we face this pressure which calls us to say, are we going to persevere? Because when we persevere, when we've stood the test, we will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now, here's the relationship with those two. Okay, what happens is in times of trial, we have external pressure, and the external pressure helps. What happens to us externally stimulates internal pressure. So in times of trial, we are tempted to walk away from God, to not believe in God. We have certain temptations that come internally because of what's happening externally. But also in times of prosperity. So when we have times of prosperity in life, there's a different kind of pressure. There's a different kind of temptation. In those times, we could be tempted to walk away from dependency upon God. And so in that sense, there's, there's a sense of what he's saying is that, no, these, this prosperity is a kind of trial. It is a kind of pressure. So Keith, how do we understand this then? It, it, let's go deeper and see, because he says there's this paradoxical, paradoxical relationship between trials and prosperity. Again, if you have your Bibles open, look with me to James 1. Look at verse 9. And he actually makes two paradoxes to make this point. The verse, first is verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And so you see this paradox. How could you be lowly and boast in your exaltation? Those seem to not go together. And then he immediately follows this with another paradox in verse 10. And let the rich, and it's not stated there, but it's implied, let the rich one boast in his humiliation. And so again, there's a, you know, how can someone who is rich, somebody who's prosperous, somebody boast in their humiliation? That doesn't seem to make sense. See, these are paradoxes, and paradoxes are, it's a really unique play of words. What a paradox is, it's a statement that's seemingly contradictory um, and opposed to common sense, but yet is somehow true. An example, we might say, well, giving is receiving. The Bible is filled with paradoxes. So it says, the weak are strong. You know, the, the empty are full. The slave is free. The cursed is blessed. The death, you know, key, death brings life. At the core of salvation, how do we find life and death? And all these statements at first strike us as contradictory. But the more we think about it, the more that we see the truth that is, that is hidden there. Uh, G.K. Chesterton is a famous British author, and, and I love this definition of a paradox. He says, a paradox is a truth standing on its head, shouting for attention. I love that. You know, what is a paradox? It's, it's a statement of words in such a way that it gets your attention. It's standing on its head. It doesn't seem to fit. And it, and it gets your attention because it's like, well, that doesn't sound right. So then you've got to think about it. You've got to process it to say, what, is, what are they trying to say here? 
So let's look at these, um, these paradoxes. He's saying, okay, what I want you to realize is the paradox is I don't want you to see trials. I don't want you to see even prosperity the way the rest of the world does. That you've got to understand that from a biblical perspective, from a God perspective, we're going to interpret things differently. In verse 9, he said, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, again, when, when we look at this, it's, it's not saying necessarily, you know, you know, lowly, it's not just, it could be financial, but it's beyond that. It's this idea that the lowly person, the person that is experiencing any period of, 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 low, of lowliness, of any period of trial, and whether it be financial or relational, or whatever, anyone who's going through these lowly times, see, at, there we're supposed to boast in our exaltation. Now, what in the world is he talking about? I think he's talking about the idea that, he's, that he developed in verses 2 through 8. What is our exaltation? We know that in the midst of trial, we can count it joy because we know that God has a purpose. And we might think in these lowly times, no, God's abandoned. No, God hasn't abandoned you. Don't become fixated on the problems. Don't focus on the problems. Realize that there is a reason for joy even in the midst of the pain because God has a plan for it. That's the exaltation, that you are loved of God, that God has a plan, that there's something good that he wants to bring out of this brokenness. It's the assurance that there are, there's something good coming out of these difficult times. But then he hits us with that second paradox, and, and I think in some ways this one even can be harder. Again, verse 10, and the prosperous person, the rich person, should boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will not pass away. Now, as much as the first paradox was hard to accept, I think this might even be harder. This idea that while we are going through difficulty or, or, or prosperity, when things are going well, we should boast in our humiliation. You see, according to the whole health, wealth, gospel mentality, the person who's rich, the person that's going well, you see, we should glory in the blessings. We should look at it and say, here are all the blessings that I have, and I have these because God likes me and I'm doing things well, and it shows that God approves of what I'm doing. James totally confronts that thought, however. He says, no, the one who is, who's prosperous should boast in her humili his humiliation. Now, again, when we look at this, it talks about the one who is rich, but I don't think it's talking just about financial. It's talking about anybody who's going through, again, a period of prosperity, a period of whether it's financial or relational or any other kind when we go through these periods when, when life is going well. Now, now, let's try to dig into these paradoxes. What are they teaching? Well, first, the first one. Let's go back to verse 9, you know, where he says, let the lowly boast in its exaltation. It's calling us to focus on blessings in the times of trial. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this one because this is what we looked at the last couple weeks. It's, it's James 1, 2 through 8. Count it joy, my brothers, when you face various kinds of trials. Uh, again, if you haven't heard the message the last couple of weeks, I'd encourage you to go online. It's on our website. You could go to our podcast, listen to it. If you're going through periods of trial, if you're struggling with the difficulty of what's going on here, I mean, James, you know, one, two, three, eight, expounds that idea better than any, any passage I know. And so we dug deep into that, and I encourage you to go there. And, and this idea that we can count it joy, now, so I'm not going to repeat that, but I want to stress an important truth here that is, that is key to understanding what James is teaching, is that even though, though we know that he counts, calls us to count it joy, when he calls us here again to, when we're in lowly positions, to you know, boast in our, in, our, in, our, in our blessings, I want you to realize that he's teaching us to do this because it's never natural. 
It's not like, okay, well, if we get to a certain point, well, as Christians, we just go, go right through it. No, he's telling us that we need to do this because it's not natural for us to do it. And even as we mature in the faith, we talked about that last week, we might have a, you know, you know we said a quart-sized faith, and a, you know, or pint-sized faith, quart-sized problem. You might have a gallon-sized faith, and God wants to go to you at a gallon and a half. But he's still going to pour a bigger problem into your faith than what you have. You see that with, with Job. And when God pours a bigger problem than our faith into our faith, we will struggle. It will overwhelm. And it's not that our faith has failed. It's that God is stretching our faith. It's going to happen. It's natural. It's natural for us in the midst of this to not only feel like, I, I, you know, God, I can't see you. I don't understand. And, and, but then to believe those feelings, to start to question God. That's natural for us to do. And yet God calls us to, in the midst of that, to ask wisdom, and he doesn't find fault. But he also calls us in the midst of that to make the choice to believe what we know to be true. And my friends, if, if that was natural for us to do it, he wouldn't have to teach us to do it in this way. He wouldn't have to even repeat it here. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised by its heart. Don't be discouraged when you struggle. That's natural. And yet God's trying to grow us in the midst of that natural response. Now, in the same way, the principle that he tells us here in verses 10 and 11 are, are just as, as unnatural for us to do. And it's natural for us to respond in the wrong way. See, he just, just like he had to instruct us, okay, well, you know, don't do this, but count it joy. That's not natural for you to do. In the same way, he says, now the, the one who's prospering, the one who's rich, should boast in the humiliation. That's not natural. He calls us to focus on the reasons for humility in times of prosperity. And remember, if we looked at that and we said, okay, well, times of trial can be times of great blessing and growth, and it implies that times of prosperity can actually be the, a time of temptation or danger. Well, if he says, if that's true, then how do we guard ourselves against that? He says, we need to remember that material blessings are temporary, and the rich should boast in his humiliation because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. And the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now basically, here's what it's saying. In the midst of this time of prosperity, we need to remember what matters the most. See, in the midst of trial, what is it happening? Where things that we value are being shaken or taken away. And he's saying, remember what matters the most. Count it joy, even though you're losing this and that's hard. Remember these precious lessons that God is teaching you, something that cannot be taken away. And he's saying, okay, now in time of prosperity, remember that these things are good, these things are wonderful, but they're not what matter the most. And when we look at what he's saying here, look at how he defines it. That, that like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in his pursuit. You know what he's saying here? All the material things that we value, and they're not bad. You know, many of these things are not bad. They're not bad to have, want to have a good job. It's not want, bad to want to provide for your family. It's not bad to have a, want to have a good family, good relationship. Those are wonderful things. Our health, have, wanting to be healthy is not a bad thing. But all those things ultimately can fade away. That's part of the struggle, the crisis that, uh, that our country, that our world is going through now. We have all these things that we think that we're in control of, that we think, well, we control the economy, we control our health, we control, we've got all this, you know, all this technology and medicine, and we control things now, and suddenly we're reminded we don't have nearly the control that we thought we did. 
And so many of the things that we put our value on are suddenly being threatened because it can be taken away, it can fade away. And here's the danger. But friends, if we fix our heart on something that can fade away, when it fades away, so will we. If we build as our foundation a love for something that can fade away, something that can be shaken, when that fades away, when it's taken away, when the sun comes out and it scorches it and suddenly it dries up, suddenly we're dried up. Suddenly our life is at the very core of our being is destroyed. Because what happens is that we put our primary love in something that wasn't designed to be a primary love. See, the principle is this, that we were created for a relationship with God. That's supposed to be at the center of our being. And when we have this relationship with God and we know what matters the most, then all these other blessings that God gives us, we can enjoy them most fully because we're enjoying them as blessings. We're not trying to make them be God's. But when we put our heart and fix our heart on these things, we're actually putting them in place of God in some way. We're trying to get them to fill our core needs in a way that only God can And what happens in these times of trial, suddenly we're destroyed. See, there's a, there's a danger here. We think of times of prosperity and we say, okay, you know, no, the trial's the danger, the prosperity, that's the good time. But, but he's saying, no, there's a paradoxical danger of prosperity. See, in the hard times, we, we can forget the lessons that we've learned during the good times, or during or the good times, we can forget the lessons we've learned in the hard times. These great truths, these things that make us healthier, that make us happier, that make us a more complete person, that we've learned that it's worth the pain. You see, in the good times, we can forget these things. One of the things that we can forget is we can forget our need to rely on God. We can start to think that maybe we do control things. Maybe we are accomplishing things by our own effort. I think of uh, the warning that God gave to his people, the people of Israel, children of Israel in Deuteronomy. They had gone through this period where they had been wandering in the wilderness and, and uh, they were about to enter the promised land. And God says, okay, I'm about to bless you with these great blessings. And he said, okay, but here's a warning. Th- these are great blessings, but there's a danger in the blessing. When you come into this, you know, the problem is that in all these blessings, watch out that you might forget the things that you've learned in the wilderness. You might forget the importance of your relationship with, with me, with God. Look what he says in verse 8. Uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Deuteronomy 8.11. He says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Here's what he's saying. Watch out. This time of prosperity, it has a danger. It has a temptation. You'll forget the most valuable lessons in life. You'll forget a relationship with me. You become self-reliant. Look what he says in verse 17. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and might, the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. I've accomplished it. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealthy. that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. No, we need to remember that it is God that gives us all these things. See, the challenge that we have is to say, how can we enjoy times of prosperity and at the same time find true prosperity? 
So in the good times, it's not only that we can find the reason for joy because we find the truest value in times of trial, but how can we prosper in good times? Again, let's go back to James 1.5. It says that in this, part of the purpose is God wants to develop wisdom. The heart of wisdom is what? It's not only understanding certain truths about God, but knowing how to apply those to our lives. In the time of trial, we struggle for wisdom. We struggle with saying, I know that God is good. I know that God is loving. I know that God provides. And, and yet in the midst of this, we have a hard time seeing it. We know, but we can't see, so we struggle. And so God grows our faith by giving us a problem bigger than our faith. We, in the midst of that struggle, and it teaches us that, okay, God, help me to believe what I know to be true even though I don't feel it. God, help me to take what I know to be true about you and to believe it even when I don't see it. God, help me to have a faith that is deeper, that gives me a joy that transcends circumstances. Now, again, many of us would admit, boy, we've grown in those good times, but we struggle in the bad times. In, in the good times, God exposes this gap between what I believe and what I, you know, what I know and what I really believe, and, and it's this gap of, is God really good? But in, in, or, I'm sorry, in the hard times, but in the good times, there's a different gap. I know I need to depend on God. I know that God, everything comes from God, but, but suddenly, I, I, practically, I really, I really don't believe it. Oh, our theology says it, but here's what we see. In the hard times, we pray. We pray, God, help me. God, you know, I realize that everything comes from you. God, I desperately need you. But oftentimes, in the good times, we pray far less. Our theology hasn't changed, but our practical belief or our need of God sure has. Or in the hard times, we recognize the most precious gifts. God, you give me everything, and I need this. I, I, you know, we value just our relationship with him. But then in the good times, we start to forget that. And we spend less time with him. We spend less time pursuing him. We need him less. We, and we spend more time enjoying the material possessions. We find our joy there. Now, what do we need to do? We, in a sense, need to preach the truth ourselves, just like we did with trial. We need to say, what is the truth? God, help me to believe this truth even when I don't feel it, even when I don't see it. It goes against nature. You see, it, it's natural in this time. It's like, man, I, I just naturally am prone to, to wander away from God. I'm prone to trust more, to put my, my, uh, my, my identity more in the things that God has given me. But what we need to remember is that in the midst of this, there's some things that we need to, to, to preach to ourselves, to literally, how do I take pride in my humiliation? Let me give you a couple specific ideas that I think are taught throughout the Bible, that are implied here and that are taught throughout. You know, one is just remember that everything that you have is a gift of God. That everything that you have, we're going to come back to this in a couple weeks, and it's, it's a vital point to understand our, our relationship with God. See, to remember our humble position, it means that everything that we have is, is God's grace. I think of, of some of you were back with us when we looked in Daniel 4 and, and Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar was not humble. He was proud. Look at what I built. God said, okay, you really built that? Here, let me take your health away. And suddenly it's all gone. No, we look at that, look what I've built. I've got hard work and my ideas. And my Well, everything that we have is a gift of God. And, and have I, do I work? Yes. But God gave you your intelligence. God gives you your strength. God gives you the ability. And trials are things that when we assume that, okay, look what I've done, God shakes it and says, oh, do you really have that control? See, it's something that we remember no, I don't have these because I earned it. I don't have it because I deserve it. I'm not succeeding because of, I'm a good person. It's all a gift of God's grace. 
We learn to hold lightly that which God has given us. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about this. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why do you boast as think if you, know, you earned it of yourselves? And um, now if, if we really understand this, it's going to change us in a lot of ways. If I really understand that everything that I have is a gift of God, I'm going to serve other people. I'm going to be patient with other people in the midst of their struggle. I'm not going to say, well, I've succeeded and you've, you know, I'm a better person than you. No, I'm not. You know, I, I, I love doing, you know, even ministering to people at places like Haven Arrest. And, and it reminds me, but by the grace of God, there go I. The only difference between me and them is God's grace. And, and people in need to remember the times that I've been in need and to realize, okay, boy, it's God's grace. I serve people. I give differently. It's, part of that is even the whole idea of tithing and giving. You know, why is it yeah, we give to the church in part because it supports the ministry of the church and we appreciate that. That's important. But you know even a deeper reason? God calls us to give because it's a way of acknowledging that everything we have is from God. It's not mine. The, the material wealth I have is not mine. It's God, stuff that God has entrusted to me. So in giving and tithing, it's a way of on a regular basis recognizing this is God's that he has entrusted to me. Not only that, but we're called to boast in our humiliation, which means that let's go back and remember the periods of trial. We like to think when we're done, and I don't want to think about that again. Ben, it was painful, especially if the trial was somewhat related to our failure, if we somehow contributed. I don't want to think about that. That's shameful. But what we need to realize is we need to remember what God has taught us. We need to run toward the trial. And in a sense, Look at what Paul says. He's talking about his own trial. In, this, in 2 Corinthians 12, he's talking about this thorn in this flesh, this trial that he had, this, this we don't know what it is, some kind of physical problem. And, and he says, I pray that God would remove, remove it. And his sense, he says, I feel like God said to me, verse 9, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Same idea, boast in our humiliation, boast in our weakness, so that the power of Christ may, be, may rest upon me. What does he say? For where I'm weak, there I'm strong. He uses that paradox. I want to tell you, I, this is so meaningful to me. I think about this. When I think about periods of trial, the more that I remember those, the, the better it helps me to deal with periods of success. Sometimes, you know, people say, well, you know, you know, are you tempted to get pride? You know what I do? I remember I failed. I remember all the ways that I failed. And if I start to have some success and I think, well, look at what I'm doing. All I need to remember is that I failed before and the difference between now and then. It's at the same effort, the same, you know, all the things were the same. But yet, some seasons, God shows his, his blessing on me and allows me to succeed. In other periods, I failed miserably. See, the, the difference isn't me. It's not me. I recognize that if I'm succeeding, if I'm enjoying times of prosperity, it's God's blessing. And that allows me to live with a, a humility, hopefully. I boast in my humiliation. I boast in my failure because it allows me to depend upon God in a way that I would readily forget if I really thought it was all about me. And not only that, but there's a sense where we not only remember our failure, but God wants us to literally run to our failure so that we not only learn from it, but we let God redeem it that we let God take what has happened and somehow bring 
his good out of it. I love what it says in, in Ephesians 1.11. Look what Paul says. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That God works everything, all things in our life according to the counsel of his will. That means everything that has happened to us. That means our trials. That means our failures. That means you know, where, we've, where, we've, our, our, where we've been abused, where we've been disappointed, where people have done wrong things against us. All those things, God said, I allowed that because I not only want to teach you, but I want to redeem it. I want to use it. I want to bring something good out of it. And I love when I see people do that. When I see people take, you know, their, their, oh, the thing you don't want to think about, the failure that I want to hide, that I, and suddenly they share their story, and their story of shame and failure becomes God's story of glory. What beforehand was, I wouldn't want anybody to know this about me because it makes me look bad. Suddenly you share it, and everybody's saying, what a great story, but it's a story of God's grace. And you see people through ministry, ministries like Galvanized, a ministry to those that are recovering from addiction. The people that lead that are all people that have come out of addiction and that are letting God redeem their story, bringing good out of, out of brokenness. Divorce care, grief share, are people that have experienced brokenness of divorce and grief. Financial Peace University are people that have dealt with financial crisis and have mismanaged their funds and have learned and said, okay, let me, instead of running from that, let me now share what God has taught me and how God has grown me and redeem it so I can help other people. People that have, that have been sexually abused have shared that testimony, have been incredibly useful in, in reaching other people. God's reaching into the deepest pain and saying, I want to redeem that. Only God can do that. And can you let God do that in your life? In the midst of this, what we're seeing is that he calls us to pursue looking at life differently, to find an ultimate blessing. And he gives us a path and a, prom a promise of and a path to this ultimate blessing. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. My, my friends, the term blessed here doesn't mean short-term pleasure. It doesn't mean physical, financial blessing. It means a long-term happiness that, ex that transcends circumstances, that circumstances can never take away. It's a kind of blessing where, so that when the storms come, that we still live with a joy, a peace that passes understanding, a blessing that knows a fulfillment in life even when the sun comes up and the flower fades. See, it's a blessing of ultimately rooted in this relationship with God because, again, we were created for this relationship with God at the center of our being. And I want to challenge you. There may be some here that, again, you, you're here and you're struggling and you're watching, you know, you're listening, you're watching this or listening to this message and how do I fix this? My friends, the deepest wounds in your life aren't going to be fixed by this or that. It's, it's not a how-to. It's ultimately a, a relationship with God to recognize that you were created for this relationship with God. And apart from that relationship with God, all the things that you have, you're going to fix your, your heart on the things that fade. And when they fade, you're going to fade. And that may be where you're at. And the challenge is, how do I get these things back? It's, no, how do you fix your heart on something that won't fade? It starts by recognizing, God, I know I need this relationship. I've sinned against you. I, that broke that relationship. That's why Jesus died on the cross. God, I ask you to forgive my sins through Jesus' death on the cross. Give me that relationship with you. He invites you to that relationship, to all who would believe in him, who'd ask for that forgiveness. He gives us the right to become children of God. 
to those who have that now. See, now he grows us so that we learn to value that relationship more and more. And how does he do that? Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial. Steadfast, and that trial might be the difficulty of, of, uh, of, of, difficulty of trial. And, and how do we remain steadfast and remember those key ideas? You know, don't, don't view it like the rest of the world. See it through the paradox of finding joy in the midst of trial. Or if you're in the time of prosperity, or after this whole virus lifts, and if you experience a time of, paradox, of, of prosperity, remember there's a steadfastness God calls us to then as well. The lessons that we've learned during the hardest times, remember those even when it becomes good. Maybe it's steadfast in pursuing the things that valued the most, to, to literally learn to, to exalt, to boast in your humiliation. And when we learn to do that, what happens is we learn this promise of blessed is that man or that woman. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast. When we do that, when we've stood the test, when we've stayed faithful in good times and bad, we'll receive the crown of life which God promises to those who love him. God invites you to that today. Let me pray and then we'll close in song. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we have to come together. Father, to be able to dive into these truths. Thank you for the truths that are here. Father, that you give us, that you challenge us with. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be able to, to not only understand these in theory, but Father, to look deeply in our own lives. I pray for those who are in the middle of trial, that Father, that, the, that they would learn to boast in their exaltation. That Father, that you would help us to find joy in the midst of trials. Father, for those who are in the midst of, of prosperity, that, uh, that we're making it through through this time. Father, help us to be able to boast in our humiliation. Father, help us who are in the midst of trials to not only learn, but to remember these lessons even when things do get better. And Father, help us to be people who find our identity in you. Father, who, who discover and live in the truest and greatest blessings of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.